welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. Though his literary fame came late in life, W.G. Zabald is often credited with creating a wildly influential, unclassifiable genre that mixed fiction with memoir and travelogue. Since being crowned a revelation by Susan Sontag in 1996, Zabald has enjoyed a celebrity in the English language world that has gone unquestioned. Though, as Lauren Euler writes in the December issue, the actual experience of reading his works and critically appraising his prose has often either gone unquestioned or been washed over with near-universal praise. In this episode, which is absolutely not a takedown of Zabald, <clears throat> I was joined by Euler to discuss a review of Carol Angier's biography of Zabald, the appealing and less engaging aspects of Zabald's writing, and her own travels through Germany in the hopes of connecting with the author. As we start, I was so anxious about doing this because I had never read Zabald before mm -hmm. and I was trying to prepare and I was trying to prepare and I would I reached a point where it's like well I can never prepare for this properly and I then I realized I'm in the Zabald zone I'm in the perfect headspace to try and uh the inadequacy I don't have the intergenerational guilt but the the feeling of being lost of not really being able to touch the thing I'm like okay I'm good. Absolutely. I think too that it's really hard to like write about him because it's it's sort of all of the sort of details and the sort of information just slips through your fingers because yes. he has this sort of like people a lot of the time say it's hypnotic, but it's a very sort of like even tone that makes everything sort of wash over you in this really weird way. Yeah, no, I, I find that to be very true where it's not like there isn't drama, but the sort of normal things that would be like this bit of information is more important than this bit of inf information is not just not there. Yes, absolutely. Which again is in theory that's appealing, but then the actual act of reading it sometimes it's just sort of like, well, okay, I'm d they painted the house, uh, the interior of the house, a quail egg color and uh the lady of the house thought they were bourgeois or something for painting their bedroom that color <laughs> like well what's going on yeah exactly and and i mean so i mean it's really a lot of the things that he writes are really amazing i think i was just looking it through austerlitz and i you know i just like the random page that i was looking at has this really amazing thing about the liverpool street tube station in london about you know he couldn't determine if it was a ruin or a building in the process of construction. And this is a whole sort of metaphor for a lot of what Seewald's doing in that book and all of his books. Uh, but because all of the books are very similar, as many of the great authors' books are, it's also you get sort of like, if you're reading them all at once, you get really sort of confused and in, in a kind of like the Seewald zone, as you say. Yeah. You write in, in your review... This is not a takedown, but I'm also not here to reheat the bland appreciation for Zabald, shared by what feels at times like everyone I know. And so you've written a piece of criticism that's equivocating, but with a point of view, which I, I feel like it's a very uh, extremely rare mode of criticism in the internet age, where either everything's just like all in, or this thing needs to be deleted from history permanently. So... What motivated you to work through your thoughts about Zabald? 
Well, so the sort of peg for the piece is the publication of the first kind of major biography of Zabel that was published in October. It's called Speak Silence by this woman, Carol Angier, who lives in the UK, and she's, I think she's Canadian. And I really didn't want to write this sort of, there, there is a set of like Zabald pieces that are all basically the same. And they're sort of like processing his themes and saying he's a genius and he's created a new genre, very popular thing to say that he's created a new genre, talking about the way that he blends fact and fiction and how he is the sort of influence for many writers working today. And I was really interested in thinking about the way his influence works today, because I think I wasn't, I wasn't around when there was a sort of, when he, I wasn't, I wasn't reading literature in 1996 when his, his first book was published in English, but there was a sort of like Zabal craze that never really died down. Basically he was sort of heralded by Susan Sontag in the Times Literary Supplement in 1996. And from there he just was like, it was like a sensation. And he wrote these four novels, and then he tragically died quite young at the age of 57 in a car accident in 2001. And so since then, he's been sort of like, he's really been canonized. I think there there are so many very prominent writers who have celebrated him and sort of promoted his work really effectively. And every generation, there are sort of more and more of the same kind of there's a feeling, I think, among people that no one is reading Zabald and I need to tell people about this experimental German author that I've discovered who does this really weird, really weird thing. But actually, that's not the case. He's, he's really quite popular for a literary author who <laughs> writes this kind of, it's not dense, but it, it is, I think, hard, harder to get into than you would expect stuff. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to like, take that pose. I wanted to sort of examine why that pose is so so common and so attractive for so many critics and also to sort of examine how his influence functions because I'm not I'm not a huge fan of Zabald as is clear from the piece and so but but he's one of those people that makes you feel like there's something wrong with you for not being a huge fan and I think because a lot of the people who like him really really like him and I talked to so many people while I was writing the article and I was basically searching for someone to say like, no, I'm not a big fan of Zabal, whatever. I couldn't get through the immigrants. Like I couldn't get through Rings of Saturn, but everybody that I talked to would just be like, oh no, of course I love Zabal in this kind of hushed reverential tone. And I, I wanted to sort of like square the circle there somehow and try to find a position that would allow for those people to continue to revere Zabal, but also allow the growing Zabald skeptic <laughs> movement to flourish. <laughs> right. And I think too, like I often review contemporary novels, right? And I think with a contemporary novel, your responsibility as a critic is quite different, which is you're supposed to sort of find a place for it or not, right? You, you can say with contemporary novel, you know, this is trash. It shouldn't have been published and you shouldn't read it, right? But I think with someone mm-hmm. like Zabald or someone who is in a, in a kind of canon like that, it's not you, you don't have that power and you don't want that power because it is nice to have a, a body of work that can be debated and discussed, right? In a, in serious sort of at a, at a high level. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I don't want to get into a discussion of the canon just yet. That obviously, because then it's like if you're if you're trying to take again, if you're trying to take him down, 
then you're just like a contrarian and you're not seeing all this th these things that are necessarily good or you will be written off as a contrarian but absolutely yeah, yeah. and i think too it it is some people on Twitter were like, oh, there's a Zabald takedown. And I, I forgot that I said it's not a takedown in the article. And then I remembered and I was like, wait a minute, like, you guys, <laughs> this is not right. But yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm not particularly interested in the canon or not the canon. I'm interested in sort of like the, the books that people talk about more so than the canon. I know that people get very, you know, all bent out of shape about it. But what was interesting, too, when I was writing and sort of reporting the article was the difference in Zabald's in his sort of station or his his role in the Anglo-American literature versus in uh, German literature? Because in Germany, it's I think that's a country um, that is sort of very obsessed with their canon, and I don't think I'm not the best source on this, but he's not really. He doesn't have the same kind of status there that he has here and in the UK. Right. That, well, I wanted to ask about that next, because in a point in your piece, you're in Kempton and you were talking to the founder of the Zabald Society and he's complaining that nobody really knows him and he's big outside of Germany. And I suppose you could make an argument that part of the reason for this is that Zabald fulfills a very specific role for English and American writers of the penitent German, the permanently penitent German. And then his style and his form is capturing that end of history experience, the, the postmodern condition that you can only experience history secondhand through research as an academic observer, as a writer, as a reader, as someone who is, is close to history by virtue of their parents, their grandparents, etc. But they're not, they can't get close to history in the way that it's all just secondary text, right? Right. And I think too that he, I think in general, particularly now in the US, my sense of the the international writers that are very popular here are those writers that kind of represent their country in a kind of like Olympics way, right? Like they're like this, as you say, like Zabald is the pen into German. That is what we want from a German writer. We want them to be thinking about Germany, right? And we want a French writer to be having lots of affairs and being kind of like amoral yes. and, you know, Welbeck, so French or whatever, right? And we want Murakami from Japan. And it's it's a very, it's a very crude like oversimplified way of thinking about literature and about nation and about culture and all this stuff, but that is how the market works. Yes, so, certainly. So, but his, his position in Germany is quite interesting because one of the, so I, I, as part of the piece, part of the reason that I made the piece so weird, the piece is quite weird if you haven't read it, it's <laughs> uh, because, because there's been so much written about Zabald and it just like made me so sad to think about writing just a sort of straightforward 4,000 word literary essay that sort of takes stock of his style and his themes and what people have said about him and what is his position, right? Like I really didn't want to do that. And I, I live in Berlin part of the year. So I was in Berlin and I was like, well, Zabald is always going on these moody, pointless trips. And I actually love going on <laughs> moody, pointless trips too. So I will go on a moody, pointless trip in order to write about Zabald and that will be kind of funny. So and while I was researching, I found that there was a sort of newish, they were founded in 2019, Zabald Society, the Deutsche Zabald Gesellschaft, 
which is based in the Algoy region where Zebald is from. He was born in a little village called Vertach, and then he moved to Zonhofen, which luckily for me has a train station. <laughs> and then this sort of bigger town in the area is called Kemen, where the one of the founders of the Zebald Gesellschaft lives. And the founder of the Zebald Gesellschaft is a really interesting man. His name is Dr. Ricardo Felberbaum, and he is a gynecologist. By day. <laughs> by day. He's actually a very accomplished, important gynecologist, as far as I can tell. Good. He was, when I, when I was going to meet him, I called him on the phone to talk about where we would be. And he was like, I can't talk for very long. I'm, I'm giving an expert witness testimony at a trial. So <laughs> Jesus Christ. I know. But he's very, he loves literature. And he has a background of being a very active member of the Marcel Proust Gesellschaft in Germany. And so when he discovered Zabal, because he moved to the region and he was just horrified that nobody that he met knew who Zabal was because he loved these books so much. And he was like, but Zabal is from here, you know, like you could have met him. You could have met his parents. I can't believe that nobody knows who he is. So he takes it upon himself to sort of build Zabal's profile in the region where Zabal is from and which he leaves and never returns to when he's 18 years old. So I'm talking to him and, and I said, you know, why do you think Zebald is not so popular in Germany? And he says, you know, he thinks basically when Zebald is writing in the 80s and 90s, Germans have sort of processed the Holocaust and the Second World War in a particular way. And they don't want to process it in the way that Zebald is, is suggesting that they do or that they need to which is not merely sort of this penitent German pose to do specifically with the Holocaust, but also he writes this essay, which is translated as on the natural history of destruction about, or I mean, that's the, that's the title of the essay collection. And he writes this essay about the destruction that in particular Germany, the country suffered during World War II. And this is a kind of controversial thing to even discuss because they, you know, they're the bad guys. So you're not supposed to talk about how they were traumatized by the fact that basically they were supposed to be this strong superior race who have, have then been sort of reduced to living in rubble and like eating rats and things like this. But Zabal is writing about this very effectively and, and quite directly. So that's one theory about him. But also I think there are some other theories that Angier brings up in the biography of him that, that make quite a lot of sense, which is to say that before he writes any of his sort of literary works, he, he is an academic or he's a sort of wayward academic. He's not very good at being an academic, but, um, you know, it's the 60s and 70s. You can kind of sort of like give you a PhD <laughs> for anything. So <laughs> he, he goes and gets a master's and is, he's write, he writes his master's thesis about, I believe his master's thesis is about the playwright Karl Sternheim, who he is a satirical playwright. And he basically just writes this kind of polemical, not well-cited argument against Sternheim, where he's like insulting him and sort of like making, you know, almost making things up. And he publishes it and he gets a lot of attention and people are like, this guy is crazy. What's he doing? You know, like he can't say this stuff. Everyone's mad. And then he does it again with his PhD dissertation, which... And he does this with his fiction. Yeah, too. he does it with his fiction. But with his fiction, he's not, he's not breaking rules. Like he, at one point in one of these sort of academic texts, he refers to Alfred Doblin, who 
is a is a Jewish author and and very beloved in Germany. He accuses him of of anti-Semitism and repressed homosexuality, and <laughs> like like you know basically like in his attempts to criticize the nation, he's actually sort of like reifying the values that he's he's criticizing. And it's a similar argument that he makes about Sternheim. He's saying basically like he's supposed to be a satirical critic of the Wilhelmine like age. And in fact, he's he's more bourgeois than any of them. And he does this like he also calls Adelbert Stifter a pederast and a compulsive eater. So all this stuff is published in Germany like before any of his literary works come out. And everybody and Carol Angier, the biographer, is quite dedicated to like making Zabald a star and like th- is just in love with Zabald. So she does, she's, you know, she doesn't get deep into all of this stuff, but it is quite clear that like he has a reputation in Germany for being a kind of crazy smasher of, <laughs> of things, basically. What you're talking about is also what makes Angier's biography really, it impedes it. Right. Yeah. Because he took the lives, he borrowed things from the lives of many people. He lied to a lot of people who were friends with him or they thought they were friends. And he used it in his books and he pissed a lot of people off in his in his personal life, not just in sort of like calling the guy who wrote a Berlin Alexander plots a, a, a anti-Semite. You know, he was doing lots of other things that would make creating a biography like this difficult and so she you as you write she kind of turns tries to see things in the text or through people who kind of sort of knew him and and by doing so she ends up with a zabaldian master's thesis of or analysis of his life (laughs) yeah i guess i didn't really actually even think about that but it's true that she has relatively little to work on She, she has a lot of problems reporting the biography. Do we say reporting the biography? Researching the biography, I guess is what we say. But the the main person in Zabald's life that she can get information from is his sister. So all of his sort of family anecdotes come from her, but she can't talk, she can't talk to his his widow, Uta Zabald. And it seems that Uta Zabald is so against this she doesn't try and impede the project of the biography, but her name isn't even in the text of the biography at all. She's thanked in the acknowledgments, but she's always referred to as Zabald's wife, which is really odd and actually has the opposite effect, I think, of what um, Angier intends, which I think is she intends to be respectful, but actually just makes, <laughs> makes which is Zabald, seem like a sort of afterthought. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, don't you love just being referred to in relation to your partner, like... That's so and so's wife. As a woman, as a as a living human being, that's I love that. <laughs> well, yeah. Also, particularly when the end of the biography is this really moving long account of his. She she doesn't say it's an affair, but it's clearly an, an affair or like a romantic relationship that he has with this woman named Marie, who he met back when he was in high school. And because he can talk, she can talk so much about Marie because she has lots of information about Marie. It, it makes the whole balance of the book seem very strange. But the issue to... So Zabald is a very sneaky guy, basically. And so there are some just practical problems that Andrea had writing this biography, which are that she wasn't allowed to quote from any of his papers, really. Um, so she could look at them, but she has to paraphrase them for us, which is a problem because she's not very good at paraphrasing and she's not very trustworthy. So, so you, you really want to see the actual text that he's written and you can't. 
and his wife wouldn't speak to her. Several of his friends and colleagues wouldn't speak to her. And so she just has to kind of, she interviews like a lot of kind of tertiary characters from his childhood, particularly. And you just get a very weird sense of him that way. And it does, he does come off seeming quite mysterious, which I think is part of his aim in his, what what his friend calls essayistic semi-fiction, right? He's often using a narrator who is a lot like him, but who doesn't really give very much information about him at all, himself at all. Um, and you get sort of a sense that he's Zabel-like, but there are some little differences, but we don't know, you know, it doesn't really matter. And, and readers of contemporary literature will be very familiar with this because it's an extremely popular mode today. So he's he's really considered influential because of this kind of blend of fact, fact and fiction. But you mentioned earlier the sort of ethical, or not even ethical, just like kind of not good to do thing that he does, which is he will just, there's a quote in the, in the biography where one of his friends is saying, you, he's such a charming guy and he gets you to tell you everything. And then he just steals it and puts it right in his book, <laughs> which is another thing that people might be familiar with it that that is is discussed a lot now the sort of issue of like using quote other people's stories in in fiction for your own books uh and I don't I'm not that I guess because I write I've written a novel and I intend to write more I guess I don't see what's so wrong about doing that but I see why you would get upset about it right so he kind of like pillages his his friends and acquaintances' lives for details, and but I do I do sort of think that Angier makes more of an issue of it than it needs to be. But then the other reviewers of this biography have also made a huge issue of it as well. Ben Lerner wrote a piece for the New York Review of Books that was just talking about this issue nonstop, and it's very weird to read Ben Lerner <laughs> talking about it because he seems to do that as well. So 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 I mean maybe he doesn't do it, but. But clearly there has to be, again, there's nothing new about this. Writers have done this for forever. However, there has to be, again, and because she can't actually get, you know, Angera can't actually get to talk to anybody, there has to be something else besides he just used my story. There had to be like, you know what I mean? But again, it's like one of those murky things where it's like, well, we can never know because he pissed off those people so much. They don't want to even talk about it. There have been times where someone's like, oh, yeah, that was me. Right. I mean, even even bad art friend. She was willing to be like, that's me. I'm mad about it, but that's me. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, right. It's, there's some something else is going on there. But again, it seems irrelevant. It does seem. I think, too, there is a clash of academic versus literary values here particularly yes. in the case of Zabal, less so in the case of Bad Art Friend, which I think is an issue of two writers wanting to see <laughs> yes. the same material. And one of the writers made the other writer look very, like, portrayed them looking very bad, right? Yes. Um, it's Hey, it's a very good thing to give away a kidney, all right? It saves <laughs> lives. It's only, you should be, more people should do it. You should maybe create a secret Facebook page about it, all <laughs> yes. right? Well, Chill out. <laughs> I, my belief is that if you want to preserve any of your material, you shouldn't put it on social media. That's true, too. But the, the Zabald's issue is something else, which is, I think, some of it is, like, a citational issue. He gets the inspiration for Austerlitz, his final novel, which many people would say is his sort of masterpiece. Some of the inspiration for Austerlitz's story and Austerlitz basically 
the novel is narrated technically it has this sort of frame narrator that all of his books have which is to say that there's a Zabald like character who's narrating but Zabald is primarily having conversations with the character of Jacques Austerlitz who it turns out we find late in, in the book was born in Prague and was transported to Wales as part of the Kinder's transport at the beginning of uh, World War II. So he grows up in Wales, doesn't know, basically represses, it's a whole story about him repressing his knowledge of his past and his knowledge of, of his, his parents and things. And then he finally, at the age of, I think, late, maybe in his 50s or 60s, goes back to the Czech Republic and sort of investigates his past and tries to find, and he meets his former babysitter neighbor and, and talks to her about her, his, his parents and, and what happened to them. And this story comes from a documentary, I believe, which, which is, it's not directly taken from the documentary, but, but there are a lot of details that the two share. And so the issue is, is both sort of like a, you know, should you, should you really, you should be really giving credit to the, to the, person who it's not only their story but it's their story that they have spoken about publicly and she might have a book too I actually can't remember but so the issue is not just that he has like made a Facebook group about someone's kidney uh, or he's, he's written about someone, someone donating their <laughs> kidney that they've sort of talked about on Facebook but it's it's sort of more complicated and he will also do sort of less significant but still sort of academically questionable things like he will take sort of lines or passages from literature and just put them into his text which is you know a very not uncommon thing to do particularly in the 80s and 90s when he's working he's not kathy acker <laughs> no no he, and and i think something that's also weird about it is he is publishing first in german and he is being translated but he works a lot on the translations and because he's so popular in the u.s and the uk and because American and British readers like aren't really going to have a familiarity with the text that he's he's borrowing from, it's not. It's, I mean, it's it's not really that clear to me. I need someone to tell me like when he's taking this from Kafka or when he's taking this from Stipta or whatever because I'm not that familiar with those texts. And so there is this other kind of like tricky thing that he's doing that just. If he were publishing them today, someone would go on Twitter and scream about how he's plagiarizing Kafka or whatever. <laughs> but it would be on German <laughs> Twitter. No one would know. <laughs> very true. Uh, that's very true. Because again, this is, I mean, because again, this is like this weird space that literature translation exists in in the English language literary world, right? But his manipulation, I don't know, manipulation, his, the level of control that he exerted over these English translations, just like reworking them and reworking them, you know, you find that level of control in the photographs, how he would purposely degrade them, crop them, the exactness of places, the things in those places, and ascribing them a, a very distinct psychological meaning. It, it seems like this sort of bolsters your, your assertion that, uh, Sabald's books is having, quote, something posturing and needy about them without sensing that this impression extends to at least some of the author's many devoted and vocal admirers. Absolutely. I think the, the appropriation or the illusions or whatever we want to call them, depending on our mood, <laughs> is it, I think 
when you read him, you do. My tendency is to want to compare his novels to poem, like poetry. And his first literary work that he publishes is, is, is a long poem, actually. And he works in poetry a lot. Or there's something like conceptual about them that, that make this kind of like preciousness make sense. Because I think if we're thinking about a novel, Ben Lerner has some quote about this where he's talking about going from writing poetry to writing a novel. And when you're writing poetry, you want every word to be perfect and it needs everything needs to convey meaning, right? But when you write a novel, you really need these kind of like hills and valleys, right? There you need you need some pages where there's not like the utmost meaning transmitted with every line but I, I think that Zabel doesn't get that right like and that is why you sort of I think part of why he inspires this kind of reverence among so many people but also why his books are quite taxing just from a, a reader's experience or my 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 reader's experience because everything in them feels like it's going to have an important connection to something else and everything in them all of the word, the word choice is quite odd. Um, it's a little bit, it's often called kind of anachronistic. He's sometimes compared to, you know, almost Victorian, his almost Victorian language. I think in the German, it's might even be weirder, but I, I'm not reading him in German. So I don't know exactly what it feels like. Even And even if I were reading him German, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't be like, oh, this word is weird. That's like how most German words are for me. So I wouldn't know. But the strangeness is definitely purposeful and and I think yeah that is why some of these effects are the way they are oh sure the part of Zabald's project with this level of control and this aging of the text in a weird way or or making it timeless but also kind of not contemporary hiding the fact that these books were written in the 80s and 90s you go on to quote uh, Patricia Lockwood's line about a similar attitude of world weariness that she found and appreciates uh, in the work of Rachel Cusk. And as Lockwood puts it, why must we live in these places? Why must these be our concerns? Why do I have to know what McDonald's is? And, and the, the, you answer that last rhetorical question by saying, because it is our job. Without McDonald's, we can see the writer's point, but we can't quite make out its source. Could you, could you expand on this idea? And, and like, what are you meaning by the writer's point in Zabald's case? Sure. Well, I think in Zabald's case, there is this kind of out of time quality and he wants to, he's collapsing time. One of the things that James Wood sort of praises him for is that, that he's done away with the fiction of linear time or chronological time or something like this. And uh, I mean, my approach to writing is that we all live in chronological time. It's not, it's, 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 it's a construct that we have cre- we've created linear time for a reason. It's quite pragmatic. I mean, maybe I'm just too. You have to decolonize. Pragmatic for Zabald. Yeah, I'm like I can't see the beauty in this. I'm like you don't have any. You never have to get gas in this book. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you know he's making an argument about the burden of history and our awareness of history and. In that way, I think history tends to overshadow the contemporary or to sort of like loom over it menacingly. So that when he's at McDonald's, right, he's like talking about McDonald's like he's in a, a 17th century dungeon or something. And it is kind of, those moments are quite funny in Zabel, actually, but, but they, <laughs> the bad feeling of McDonald's, I think, is not about 
World War II. No. <laughs> the bad feeling of McDonald's is about something else. And that's, I think, the point that I'm trying to make there. But I do think part of the appeal of Zewald today, in particular, we live in such a sort of presentist moment where people are constantly saying that the world is about to end, you know, the apocalypse is coming, like we've destroyed, everything is just, everything is like on the brink of total destruction and everything feels kind of plastic and superficial and, and everybody's kind of dissatisfied for one reason or another. So to, to read Zabald, it, it doesn't actually make you confront those things about the present. It doesn't make you think about, even if he's sort of characterizing his existence as a kind of dreary, like gothic <laughs> horror show. Kind of. Where, you know, he's haunted by memory, but he can't actually, you know, he can't actually grasp whatever is tormenting him he does sort of ignore the kind of like disreputable unfortunate aspects of contemporary life that i think many people would also like to ignore yeah i mean he's clearly more concerned with the burden of the past and one of the things angier writes about is that he was i would say probably a not great claim to make is that he, you know, he was the German writer who most deeply took on the burden of the German responsibility for the Holocaust. I mean, you you criticize parts of her biography throughout the review, but did did her biography help you to at all understand what it was that compelled Zebald to, to to this subject in a way that other Germans of his generation did not or supposedly did not? I think it definitely does help. It did help me understand Zebald's particular relationship to the Holocaust and his feeling of, of being kind of in a, not, I mean, we would say now he was like in kind of a bubble. He, when he's, he's born in 1944. So the war is almost over. And his father, when he's born is in the Wehrmacht, but he is a prisoner of war in France. And his father comes back to Vertok where he lives when he's three and his, he's got this kind of very typical authoritarian, patriarchal German father who he doesn't have a very good relationship with for his whole life, even before he understands that his father was in, in, in the Wehrmacht and was, you know, sort of responsible for, for the horrors of the Holocaust in this way. So there's that element. But also in the Alloy, there's really not any destruction from the war. There's There's... He goes to Munich, Zewald goes to Munich when he's three or four and he sees the kind of rubble and all the buildings are destroyed and he thinks like that, that that's what a city is. All cities are just rubble and destruction because he doesn't understand, you know, what has happened. But he lives in this kind of idyllic valley. It's at the foothills of the Alps. You can go on long walks. You go on long walks with his grandpa all the time. There are animals everywhere. It's extremely beautiful. He can swim. He can go hang out at a waterfall when he's a teenager. So. He has this kind of disconnect where he has seen the destruction of war, but also he's like being raised by, in his view, I think, being raised by a Nazi in this kind of beautiful Alpine village, right? And I think that this is really affecting for him. And and Anger's argument is just that the reason he reacted in the way that he did by by writing the sort of things that he wrote is that he is just basically more sensitive than everyone else. And, and this is her argument. And you can't really, you know, you can't really prove it. And it's it's sort of a, it's not the most irresponsible argument she makes in the book, but it is a little bit of an irresponsible argument to make based on the amount of information she has about him, which is not that much. But she, she basically comes to the conclusion that he's just a sort of romantic soul 
who feels these things more strongly than other people. (laughs) So I don't know if that sheds light on him per se, but it's sort of a lot of it. It's a lot of it does make sense. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, just looking at that post-war generation, there were in other mediums, there are well-known instances of that post-war generation really confronting that past in a way that is unsparing. Absolutely. Fascinating. And so, I mean, my, again, like my objection is simply that certain works get translated, certain works don't. So to say that he was like the one guy, I find it a little. Yeah, absolutely. And I just, even if she, she, I think she, you know, she reads, she can read German. She knows about German literature, but I don't think that you, it's just not, even if you want to say that, it's not an argument that's worth making because what are the ter- the terms are so relative anyway. But yeah, of course, I mean, so much of that post-war generation who are older than Zabald also were doing that work. And, and it's sort of interesting now because in Germany, there's this conversation there's that book, Learning from the Germans. Do you know this book? Yes. Which is very popular and about how sort of the United States and other countries can learn from the German uh, Vergangenheitsbewältigung, which is the sort of d- dealing with the past, the, the, the sort of overcoming and dealing with the past process that is ongoing in Germany. But the U.S. already learned from Germany. Project Paperclip. Look it up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I just think too that like the the this kind of moment where you know Germany was about about to sort of Angela Merkel was about to transcend Donald Trump and sort of become the leader of the free world and they were going to replace America and provide their being an example for the world by letting in a million refugees from Syria and from the Middle East and you know things like this it's a very interesting moment to read Zabald and to read these arguments about Zabald because he is, in some ways, you can think of him as quite prescient. I'm, I kind of want to turn back to this question of, what do you, what do you call it, the um, tentative preciousness through the commas in the, in the English translations that he worked on and sort of this feeling that, you know, Zabald in English seems to fit into this category like he's become one of these writers people just pretend to like as a way of signaling good taste and if this were true it would raise this interesting secondary question of how that came about what is it about these novels that people feel like they're supposed to like right and do you have any theories about this or do people just feel dumb and they just enjoy enjoying something written in long winding painstakingly balanced sentences oh i think i mean i think i think people genuinely like him i do think on a serious level the sort of moral gravity and the portrait of history or his assessment of history or argument about history are very compelling and i think so on a sort of grand thematic level you can easily argue for zabald right um and then on the sort of sentence that stylistic level right you have this kind of precious it's very painstaking he's he's worked over according to Anjir, he's worked over his drafts hundreds of times in english as well as in german and you do feel that you feel this kind of like it's he's he's not having fun with it right um and i think that there's this kind of desire for seriousness both moral seriousness but also just like 
one wants an artist, right? Like one wants a really serious artist who's like, who is obsessed with word choice or, or, or whatever. Like, I think people really like that idea. But I also think, quite frankly, there are a lot of people who sort of fantasize about going on really boring vacations and like thinking their thoughts and then like becoming sort of canonized, celebrated authors, which is basically all of these books are like, he goes to extremely boring place like the most boring places in Europe almost exclusively right like he's in he's in Antwerp he's in like he's outside of Norwich in England right like he's 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 walking along the Suffolk coast these are not this is you know this is not Berlin this is not Ibiza um yeah this is not Ibiza this is not Rome this is like a rolling countryside or like a kind of bleak cityscape and I think there are people that <laughs> there. I I mean, those are the real contrarians, right? They're like, no, it's actually it's not boring at all because it's boring, right? And I I think that that's a very kind of simple attitude to take about it. But but yes, and I also think, quite frankly, there are lots of factoids in the books, and people love to learn factoids yeah. about moths, for example, like about great for <laughs> your next cocktail party, yes, silkworms, like anything like this. Right. So there's that kind of like Wikipedia element, I think. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no. And I mean, I think again, you know, to, to broadly, badly generalize uh, national characters, everyone complains, Oh, sarcasm and irony and you know then obviously there are a lot of people who are irony poisoned however there's also this innate desire in the united states to want something extremely earnest and to be very to want that seriousness and invite it in even if you're not necessarily going to process it as deeply as you think you can or you would like to right Right. And there's a lot of research in the books as well. And I th it's very impressive in the sort of connections he builds among things or he almost builds or he seems to build. All, all of those things are intentional, are part of this like, oh, that's real. You know, he's really researching. He's, you know, he's talking about literature, right? Like there's Kafka in here. That's That's real literature. And I don't have to sort of it doesn't require the kind of interpretation that a more ironic or varied register requires, I think. But yes, I totally agree. It's not, it's, it's like people trust Zabald even because of the sort of cheeky, like fact fiction blending that he's doing is not dangerous. If that makes sense. Right. Like he is doing it to make a point. Right. I think one of the situations where he's taken a story from life and kind of changed it for his purposes is the story of Henry, Dr. Henry Selwyn, yes. which is at the beginning yeah. of the immigrants. And that, that is a relatively short story. And it's about a man who lives in the country and, and basically he, he has changed his name, but he's Jewish and has come there, I think from Latvia or Lithuania and changed his name and at the end of the story, he shoots himself with a rifle. And that is more or less a, a true story of a landlord uh, that Zabald had in England. And his family was very upset that Zabald had used his story, both because they get sort of Zabald tourists at their house now. Um, oh, fuck. Yeah, and because they, they don't care that he made him Jewish, but he's not Jewish at all. 
uh, he, he just a very English person, I think is how she, the, the daughter describes him. But they do care that he has, you know, used his suicide in his fiction. And now they've got all these save all tourists coming to their house to see the house from the immigrants, which is like a real ethical problem. I think I don't know what the solution to that is, right? Like, is it is it Sable's fault that there are these sort of, you know, weirdos who want to go see the house? Just like inappropriate, like yeah. tourist minded, not, you know, unthinking people, right, coming to this house, but also to, to read about your father or your husband's suicide in a sort of popular experimental and in politicized terms, fiction, right, in, in politicized terms. Is, is is extremely uncomfortable and obviously not something that anyone should have to go through. So, but I don't think really Angier come. She doesn't come down on one side or another about that. She's just sort of telling a story, right? And so I can't remember what the beginning of this question was, actually. <laughs> well, no, it was just more a comment about earnestness, right? Oh, I guess the point that I wanted to make was that he's used this. He's used the sort of real life material in order to make a really morally earnest point right the point here is that he has suffered this man has the burden of history on his shoulders and he's sort of lost his past that he can never return to and he's suffered so much from it that it causes him to kill himself right and this is a really sort of grave important point to make and i think probably a lot of readers if they're honest would say well i like that he's making that point and the sort of like real story that was kind of collateral for that point is not, is not that much of a concern to me. Right. But don't go to the house. Oh, I mean, <laughs> I don't, I mean, I, like I said, I don't really know what the ethical, I don't, I don't have an answer about the ethical problem here, but I do think that you shouldn't go to the house. <laughs> yeah. <for sure. laughs> yeah. Nobody has a true answer to the ethical problem. However, uh, please, if you're doing stable tourism, do it responsibly. Oh, yeah. There are, but there are a lot of stable tourism opportunities that you can do. Um, oh, you can I'm walk sure. Yeah. Part of the pieces I walk the Zabel Big, which is what he, the walk he takes in Vertigo, which is his first novel, and it's very lovely. And it's a four-hour hike through the Alps, which is great. And people also do the take the walk through the the English walk that he takes in Rings of Saturn. Right. I think that's a very popular thing to do as well. <laughs> Well, uh, I don't know. The, <laughs> maybe when the industry collapses, uh, we can all just get into the literary tourism game. But until that happens. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, it is sort of sort of sad to think about, like, one day if the Zabald Vague is, like, overrun with tourists, hikers and things, right? <laughs> But it won't it be. It won't be. Yeah, I don't but think I, so. But it, it's sort of, it's so dispiriting to be like, I am very sympathetic to like someone who has, a, feels they have a special relationship to Zabel because they really like him or whatever. And then they, maybe they go on a hiking tour to sort of commune with Zabald and feel disappointed in it in some way. That's a very sad human experience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Lauren, thank you so much. This was a, uh, really fun and thank you thank you for having me you've been listening to the harper's magazine podcast produced by violet luca and andrew blevins the music is cut and shoot by febrifuge 
Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.